life tonight. Second Kings chapter six. Let me just read these these verses. We'll we'll dive in. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, "See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and let each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there." And he answered, "Go." Then one of them said, "Please be pleased to go with your servants." And he answered, "I'll go." So he went with them. When they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. And once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will one of you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel. Tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we open your word tonight and we read it and we consider it and in so many ways it feels so distant from our lives today will you give us hearts of faith and eyes to understand the way in which your word even applies to us tonight that we might be transformed and might know you better we pray in christ's name amen if uh if you've had a philosophy class or uh, even maybe even a history of western civilization class you'll have studied the period uh, called the Enlightenment, which was the 17th and 18th centuries, where there was this all of a sudden major shift that human, uh, human beings had the ability to explain everything that was happening in the world through either human reasoning or scientific advancement. It wasn't a belief that we knew everything, but it was a belief that science 
And human reasoning can solve and answer all of the questions of the world. If only we just had a little bit more knowledge or a little bit more scientific advancement, we could fully explain everything that's happening in the world. And because of that, out of the 17th and 18th century, out of this enlightenment period became a radical, uh, radical uh, skepticism of any claim that was supernatural, any claim that was miraculous, any claim that had anything to do with God. Like one of the famous artifacts that came out of this area, era is the so-called Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, one of the early uh, leaders of the United States, was heavily influenced by this movement. And he took his Bible, wanting to still hold on to some vestige of Christian faith, and went through and cut out all of the miracles or any references to anything supernatural. Because he said, this doesn't just fit with scientific reasoning, but this way I can still have my faith, whatever's left of it, and still think that I'm still intellectually credible in a scientific world. It was around that same time that Darwin's theory of evolution took off like wildfire, which all of a sudden gave the world, at least allegedly, a scientific explanation for the origin of species, the origin of life, that no longer do we need God. And so all of a sudden humanity believed, well, no longer do we need any type of supernatural explanation. But then a curious thing happened. With all of the advancements of our age and all of the advancements of science and technology, the pendulum has swung in the other direction. And all of a sudden, there's a growing, there's a growing sort of fascination and awareness that maybe the world in which we live isn't just physical. It's not just what we can see and feel and touch and hear. But all of a sudden, supernatural claims don't seem so far-fetched. How do I know that? How can I prove it? A book like Harry Potter would have never gained traction in the culture of the Enlightenment. It would have been viewed as utter nonsense. Uh, the vampire love stories uh, that have, it's okay, deep cleansing breath. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying all of a sudden within our culture, though, we don't have so much of a skepticism about supernatural claims. And so as we look at a passage like this tonight, when we see one miracle and one just incredibly supernatural awareness that Elisha leads his, uh, his, his servant to see. I know that you come tonight not as skeptical as generations past would have. But here's a, something that I think a lot of people find interesting. While the Bible is no doubt a supernatural book and full of supernatural claims of who God is and how he interacts with the world around us, Many people assume that the Bible is full of miracles, that almost every page of God's word is full of miracles. And actually, when you read it, you all of a sudden discover that's not actually the case. In fact, when you start reading through scripture, you'll start to find that the miracles that occur in the Bible are actually clustered in certain periods and certain eras. And we have to ask ourselves, why would that be? For instance, when Moses comes on this scene, all of a sudden, God gives Moses the ability to do a number of miraculous things in order to authenticate Moses is the messenger from God. When you get to Elijah and Elisha, all of a sudden, there's another sort of cluster of miracles that happens around Elijah and Elisha's life. Why? Because God's authenticating these messengers as the ones who are carrying his prophetic word. And where is the next cluster of miracles that occur? Well, when Jesus comes onto the scene, authenticating the reality of who Jesus is. So when we look at a story like this tonight, one of the dangers is that we walk away and assume that this should be the normal pattern for our everyday experience, the way in which we see these miracles occur, or the way in which this supernatural awareness 
uh, becomes part and parcel of Elisha's experience. And actually what we find is that miracles God gives aren't meant in order to prove God's existence, but miracles are given by God in order to authenticate his messengers. The miracles that God gives in those particular times are so that we might believe his word and understand its application to us in our lives today. We live in a world, this is kind of the big thing that I want you to see tonight, that we live in a world filled with spiritual realities that aren't always evident and aren't always apparent, but they're just as real as the paper you're holding or the Bible that you're reading. So what is this story, these two stories, what do they do? Why are they here? And what is God trying to communicate to us through them? Here's the first thing I want you to see. I think God cares about the mundane details of your life. The first thing I think God's wanting us to see in this story with Elisha and this man whose axe falls into the water is that God cares about the ordinary events of our lives. This story in verses 1 through 7 is just a very ordinary day when a very ordinary scheme, you know, kind of ordinary uh, events of these men's lives. There's this group of people, they're hanging out with Elisha, and they tell him in verse 1, the place where we dwell is too small for us. They need more room to live. They need a bigger house. They need to expand. And so they say, verse 2, we're going to go down to the Jordan River, and each of us is going to get a log, and we're going to make ourselves a house. And Elisha's like, you know, that sounds like a good plan. Go for it. And they're like, we don't want to go alone. Will you go with us, Elisha? And Elisha seems like he's got nothing else going on that day. So he's like, I'll go. And so verse four, he goes, they come to the Jordan. They cut down some trees. They're going about their business. They're building their houses. They're getting ready to expand their living. When all of a sudden, verse five, the ax that one of these men is using, it flies off the handle and lands in the water. And all of a sudden in this story, we have a crisis that has unfolded in this moment. The axe head has fallen into the water and he has no way to recover it. And it's obvious the, the predicament that he's in because he cries out to Elisha in verse 5, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And Elisha asks him, well, where did it fall? Verse 6, and he shows him the place. And so Elisha cuts off a stick and throws it in the water and the iron floats. And he says to him, take it up, you know, reach out and grab it. And so he takes it up, seemingly goes back to work. Uh, I think about this story, and I think about the implications of this guy's life. Imagine what was going on in his, in his life in that moment. As he's getting ready to, to cut, down the, cut down this tree, the axe head flies off, and it lands in the water. And it's obvious that if he's too poor to buy his own axe, well, then he's too poor to go and to replace it. The, you know, tools in that day wouldn't have been just as you know, easily accessible as they are in our world. It's not like you can just go down to Home Depot and buy another one. This is probably a fairly expensive tool that he's borrowed. And he's probably doing the math in his mind that goes, if I have to work this thing off because I can't afford it, how much time is that going to lend? Is how much time is that going to add into my life where I have to go and work for this person I borrowed it from? And what are the next couple months of my life going to look like? And there's only so many hours in a day. And if I'm already financially strapped, to care for my own needs. Now I've got to work extra to pay off this ax. Like, how am I ever going to get ahead? Have you ever been in a place like that in your own life? My kids um, have a habit of losing things. And so my wife and I like instituted a rule. We're like, the next time you lose a thermos, because thermoses get lost all the time, like you're going to have to contribute to pay for the next one. And so sure enough, a couple of weeks go by and one of them loses a thermos. And we say, you're going to have to, you owe us like $2. It's not going to be the cost of the thermos, but you owe us $2. So my son like goes to his drawer and he gets out his wallet and he pulls out his $2 and he hands it to me. 
And I could tell he's a little frustrated. And I was like, and I just said, you know, do you disagree? He goes, no, I don't disagree. It was my fault. I lost it. It's not fair for you to have to pay it. I just feel like I can't get ahead in life. <laughs> and I was like, it's rough out there, isn't it, buddy? <laughs> and I mean, can we not feel what's going on in this servant's heart as this moment has unfolded? I mean, just this week, Jenny and I got a bill in the mail that was not what we expected. I knew the bill was coming. I didn't know it was going to be so high. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, how many months does this account for? And I know that you've been in those same places too. But here's what I think is so fascinating about this story. This story is coming in the middle of some significant geopolitical issues that are happening in the nation of Israel. Just last week, and we're going to tie into this in a moment, we saw Naaman, the Syrian leader, get cured of leprosy, but the king of Israel thought that they were getting ready to start a war. And in the next couple chapters, we're going to see that the, that the geopolitical world that Israel is in is in just a heightened state of awareness that things are like a tinderbox ready to explode. And in the midst of all of those things, in the midst of all of those issues, God zooms in the story in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, on this particular prophet who doesn't have a name, who loses an axe in the water, and God draws near to him through Elisha to provide for his needs. God cares about the mundane details of your life. As you sit here tonight, your life matters to God. He cares about you. He tells us in his word that the very number of the hairs on your head are accounted for, that the very days of your life have been numbered before one of them comes into existence. That He tells us, do you not see the birds of the air, the sparrows as they fly? Your father takes care of them. And how much more valuable are you than the sparrows that fly? God cares about the mundane details of your life. There are moments in life where you can see what's happening in the world around you and you can see the like the major crises that are unfolding in the world. And it can cause you to have this feeling of like maybe the issues of my life aren't that big of a deal. And I think there's a moment where that's healthy to keep things into pers in perspective. At the same time, there's a danger behind that that assumes that because there's major crises going out in the world, well, then that must mean that God doesn't care about me. And that's just not true. That's bad theology. God zooms in in 2 Kings 6 on this particular story. He shows how he provides for this man in a miraculous way, but he does so because he cares about the mundane details, even of your life and mine. But not only does God care about the details of our life, we also see as the stories unfold that God has a supernatural protection of his people the second thing for us to see tonight is that God has a supernatural protection of his people. The story completely shifts when we go from verse 7 to verse 8. We're now back into the, to the geopolitical uh, world of, of all the major issues that are happening. Israel and Syria are now on the potential of war. And as I said a moment ago, remember last week, uh, God through Elisha healed Naaman the Syrian. We also saw last week that God gave Syria victory in many battles through Naaman, and yet... Here we come in verse 8, and what do we find? The king of Syria was warring against Israel. The king of Syria is going to battle against Israel. 
After God's healed their leader, after God has provided for this country, they still continue the assault against the Israelites, God's people. And we're told in verse 9 and 10 that Elisha sent word to the king, beware, do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to that place what the man of God had told him, what Elisha had told him. And so through Elisha, God protected the king of Israel time and time again. It's kind of a comical story when you get into it. Because the king of Syria is like, there's got to be somebody in our, there's got to be a traitor in our midst. Somebody is telling Elisha what's going on. And the king, the king's servant says to him, uh, you know, in verse, uh, uh, in verse 12, no, that's not what's happening. There's no traitor, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, well, he tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, that would make most of us go, let me back off a little bit. <laughs> if that's really what's going on, if God is so protecting the Israelites to where the very things that I'm telling uh, my, my, you know, my commanders is being, disp- is being uh, shared with, uh, with, with Elisha, maybe we shouldn't go into battle. But instead, he continues on to go and find Elisha. And so we find in verse 15 that when the servant of the man of God arose... Or let's just say go to verse 14, that when he got there, there's horses and chariots and a great army came by night and they surrounded the city. The king of Syria is going to get Elisha and he's seeking to destroy him. So in verse 15, Elisha's servant wakes up early in the morning. He walks out the front door and behold, there's an army with horses and chariots all around the city. And the servant turns back and says, alas, my master, what shall we do? I mean, you can feel the gravity of the moment, right? I mean, the servant's just woke up in the morning. He's got his coffee. He's walked out on the front porch. He's thinking he's just, what's his to-do list for the day of what I'm going to get done? And all of a sudden, the country is surrounded by the enemies, and they're going to be destroyed. And he walks back in the house, verse 16, and Elisha says to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, Elisha's servant's got to be thinking, what are you talking about? There's two of us and there's horses and chariots surrounding this whole world. How in the world are we ever going to be okay? And all of this servant has said is, do not fear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And if you just pause right there, you can reflect on the reality that that command is common throughout God's word. Time and time again, God's word tells us, do not fear. And he tells us not to fear because God is with us. In Isaiah 41, he says, do not fear because God is with you. In 1 John, 1, or 1 John 4, 4, he says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so time and again, God doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He says, don't fear because there's a reason God is with you. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing to actually see it. So in verse 17, Elisha prays and he says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God gave him the spiritual eyes to see that there was an army of angels all surrounding this place, protecting God's people, protecting in particular these two servants. I recently was listening to a a missionary talk about her life of smuggling Bibles into China, a country where having a Bible can be illegal. Having a Bible could get you killed, depending on the right situation and uh, place that you're in. And she was with a missions agency that had a way that they used to like sneak these Bibles in. And they would normally put uh, a youngish, uh, a youngish lady, college age, 
with an older man who's probably like a grandfather's age that doesn't seem like they're going to get caught. And it kind of seems like they're just there visiting the country, but they're really smuggling Bibles into the country to distribute them to the pastors and to the churches where they just don't have access to the Bible. And they never even got a chance to meet the pastors or the churches where they were giving them to because it was so dangerous for everybody involved that all they can do was drop them off at a location only for them to come and be picked up later where nobody knows who the other people are. And she says, finally, on the last day of this missions uh, experience, she's walking across, going through the checkpoint whenever one of the border security guards stopped her and pointed at her suitcase and told her, open it up. And she tried to stall and try to do whatever she could. And she knew, I, I, I blew it. It's over. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm probably going to jail, is what she thought in her mind at the very least. And she opened the box. She opened this suitcase, opened it up. It's full of Bibles. And in English, she said to her, what is this? And she said, we're bringing them to give away. If you want one, you can take it. And he looked around, and he zipped up the suitcase. And he said, just go. And she says, I know God was watching over us that day. There's no way that would have ever unfolded in that way. God is showing his people and he's showing Elisha in this moment that he is watching over his people in a supernatural way, which does not mean, which does not mean everything is going to magically turn out to be okay. That story that she told was a powerful story of God's protection and provision. God's promise is, says, do not fear, not because everything's just going to turn out okay. He says, do not fear because I am with you. Do not fear because I am with you. And that doesn't mean that we're always going to see all of the purposes and the reason why things unfold the way they do. It may not mean that we're always going to get the result that we hope that we're going to get. But it does mean that God is always with his people in every circumstance and in every situation of their life. God says, and uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This story kind of reminds me a little bit of, of, the, of the very end of Jesus' life as he's getting ready to be betrayed by Judas, or he's actually being betrayed by Judas. And you remember the story that Peter takes out his sword and he takes a swing at the guard and he cuts off his ear and Jesus like heals him and he says, put your sword away. And do you remember what Jesus said after that? He said to the disciples, do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he'll send 12 legions of angels? Do you not think I could appeal to my father right now? And he would send 12 legions. That's, you know, if you're doing the math, 72,000 angels to take care of this right now. But he says, it's not my father's will. He's called me to go to the cross. And so to the cross, he goes. God's promise through these stories is for us to see that he is always with his people day in and day out, no matter what we do, no matter what we experience, no matter where we are. So he says, do not fear because he sees us through. But the final moment of this story ends with another just sort of remarkable turn of events is that we see God's grace for his enemies. Uh, you know, we see that God cares about the mundane details of our lives, and we see that God is, is always with his people, uh, supernaturally protecting and caring for them. But we also see in this that God has grace for his enemies. Notice what happens in verse 18 and 19. After Elisha prays for his servant's eyes to be open, he prays for blindness for the Syrians. Verse 18, please 
strike this people with blindness. And so God strikes them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. I don't think it means that they went completely blind. I think it meant that they didn't, weren't able to fully understand what was happening in front of them. And so Elisha says to them, this isn't the way and this isn't the city. You know, Elisha's the one who they're after. And he's like, I'll go take you to the person you're looking for. And so here's Elisha, the one who they're after, leading them out of the city to go back into Samaria. And when they finally get to Samaria, in verse 20, he says, praise that their eyes will be open. Your eyes are open. All of a sudden they see they're in Samaria. Here's Elisha in front of us. And now what's going to happen? They're cornered and the king of Israel has them. And the king of Israel says in verse 21, should we kill them? Elisha's like, no, don't kill them. You've taken them captive. Don't kill them, feed them, care for them and send them back home. And so in verse 23, he prepares a great feast. They ate, they drank, they went back to their master and the Syrians did not come again on a raid for Israel. God cares for his enemies and even shows them grace. And the reason why that's good news for you and for me and the reason why that's helpful for us to understand is because the very heart of God's word, the very heart of the gospel is the reality that God sent his son for those who are enemies of the cross, who are enemies of his ways. Romans 5, 8 says that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. In verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more than are we now reconciled and saved by his life. Jesus didn't come to die for good people. He didn't come to die for righteous people. He came to die for his enemies. He came to die for those who are living contrary to his ways and who are walking according to the, to the world's patterns and ways of life. The old hymn writer got it right when he wrote, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. The very heart of what Elisha is leading his people to see, the reason why God has given him the power of the miraculous uh, healing, the power of the miraculous recovery of this iron axe, is so that he can authenticate the message that Elisha is here to deliver and which ultimately leads us to see the hope that's ours in Christ. His message is consistent with the very message of the gospel that Jesus comes and preaches as well. It's why Jesus heals and why Jesus restores so that we might see that that's ultimately the purpose and plan that God has for our lives as well. That this world in which we live and this life that we experience with all of its tragedies and all of its sadness and all of its sorrow, with our sin, our struggles and our failures is not the final story, but Jesus has actually come and taken on himself the very life or take on himself the very death that we deserve, has taken on himself the very sin that we've committed so that we might find life and have hope for eternity. The miracles are given to authenticate the messenger and the messenger is meant to bring us hope in the work that God is doing in our lives. So take heart. God cares about your life. He cares about the mundane details. He's supernaturally protecting you and watching over you. He's even sent his son to redeem you. Even when you're at your worst, Jesus has come in order to give you life and give you hope. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are grateful of the reality of your word the reality of the hope that is ours in Christ. And God, we ask that you'll go before us today, tonight, this week, that we'll understand what it means to be reconciled to you, that we'll have hope, not just in this life, but we'll truly understand and experience what it means to have your uh, power work through us by your spirit, to be protected and nourished by your word, and ultimately be, to be led into your presence. We pray all of this. Amen.